This episode of the OrthoBullets audio review podcast will be a question session reviewing several high-yield recon topics, including wear and osteolysis, catastrophic wear, sagittal plane balancing, TKA complications, periprosthetic fracture in TKAs, patellar clunk syndrome, THA dislocation, and THA stability. The questions that will be reviewed appeared on the Recon Exam Number 10 Specialty Exam on the OrthoBullets Virtual Curriculum. We will include a link in the show notes to take the exam if you have not done so already. The questions included in this episode will be reviewed by Dr. James Brown, who is an Associate Professor of Joint Replacement and Adult Reconstructive Surgery at the University of Virginia. I'm going to start with the, uh, the number one topic, uh, which is wearing osteolysis, and we'll, um, we'll jump right into it. we got a bunch of, bunch of questions to cover here. So question 17, highly cross-linked ultra-high molecular weight polyethylene liners used in total hip arthroplasty have which of the following characteristics compared to conventional poly liners? Well, these questions can seem a little bit daunting uh, for those of us who aren't mechanical engineers. Uh, but really, there's, a, there's only a couple of, uh, couple of key concepts that you, you have to understand to answer these correctly. Um, and this is, this is the main uh, thing you want to keep in mind when it uh, comes to conventional versus highly crossing poly. It's a trade-off. The irradiation is a trade-off. So as you irradiate the poly, the wear resistance goes up at the expense of mechanical strength. So highly crossing poly, better wear, decreased mechanical properties. And that's a key concept. The other two uh, points you want to keep in mind when it comes to highly crosslinked polyethylene uh, is that compared to standard poly, the particles tend to be smaller and the number of particles generated less. So you've got less wear, less particles in terms of number, and smaller particles with highly crosslinked poly. So if we get back to the question, again, the question's pretty straightforward. It's asking us to differentiate between highly crosslinked uh, poly and conventional poly for total hip arthroplasty. The answer they're looking for is number two, increased resistance to abrasive wear. So if you look at these questions, uh, you want to rule out the, um, the other ones. You can rule out the ones that have uh, uh, increased mechanical properties. So as we mentioned, the highly crossing poly, mechanical properties go down. It seems that 75% uh, of people got the answer correct. Uh, other uh, looks like there's a smattering of answers all around. Again, if you understand the key concepts, you can rule out all the other uh, questions. So number one, Increased average wear particle size. Again, we said highly crossing poly, smaller particle size. Number three, increased number of wear particles. Highly crossing poly is going to have fewer wear particles. Increased resistance to fatigue crack propagation. That's a mechanical property. You've got decreased mechanical properties with highly crossing poly, so number four is incorrect. Ductility is also a mechanical property. Mechanical properties go down with cross-linking, so number five is incorrect as well. So moving on, uh, question 22. A 75-year-old man underwent total hip arthroplasty 10 years ago. He now reports mild groin pain, which has been increasing lately. What is the most likely explanation for the finding in figure A indicated with the arrows? So this is an x-ray recognition question. You've got to recognize right out of the gates that that femoral head is eccentrically located within the liner, within the, uh, within the polyethylene liner. And that's a key thing to recognize. That immediately leads you down the pathway of osteolysis. So always look for polywear, eccentric position of the femoral head in these questions, and that is, that's a key uh, testing uh, uh, tip. Uh, recall that volumetric wear determines the number of particles generated, not the linear wear. It's the linear wear we're observing on x-ray, but it's the volumetric wear that actually leads to the uh, osteolysis. The effective joint space is another key concept. The effective joint space is any contiguous area around the joint and implant. This can be behind the cup, around the stem, or around screws and this is where the uh, osteolysis may be located. So if we get back to the question, 
75-year-old man, total hip arthroplasty 10 years ago, developing some mild groin pain, increasing lately. You see the x-ray, eccentric location of the femoral head, you think osteolysis, and you, you hit uh, number three as the answer, and it looks like uh, the, the vast majority of you got that correct. Question 29, a 69-year-old female, uh, 16 years status post uh, total knee arthroplasty, complains of knee pain, a radiograph is provided in figure A. Which of the following is true regarding the pathogenesis of the bony abnormality seen in the distal femur? Well, just like with the hip, look for polywear. Look for that asymmetric poly thickness. If you recognize that on the x-ray, uh, you will immediately go down the path of osteolysis. And then in terms of osteolysis, there's a couple of key uh, concepts to keep in mind. It involves phagocytosis of submicron polyethylene particles. Uh, that submicron size is important. That's come up before. Uh, and the macrophage is the key cell involved. Uh, this leads to further macrophage recruitment, release of osteolytic factors, TNF-alpha and others, and then bone resorption by osteoclasts. So getting back to the question, uh, we see this uh, knee that's been in place for 16 years. Uh, there's asymmetric uh, polyethylene thickness. There's an osteolytic defect of the medial femoral condyle. Uh, there may be a little radiolucent line around the tibial component as well. So immediately we're thinking osteolysis. We know that that's caused by macrophage activation by uh, polyethylene particles. Uh, number three is the answer, and again, majority of you got that uh, correct. Question 44. Which of the following manufacturing techniques of polyethylene results in the lowest susceptibility to fatigue crack formation and propagation in total joint arthroplasty uh, bearings? And this is another one of those questions where you look at the question and you say, geez, I have no idea how to answer this. And I'm not going to give you a whole lecture about uh, polyethylene manufacturing, but there's a couple of key points, again, that are uh, that are critical to answering these questions. And if you understand these few points, I think you'll get these questions right. There's four different uh, methods to uh, manufacture polyethylene. Three of the four involve forming the polyethylene and then machining it into the shape that's required. That can be with uh, ram bar extrusion, uh, which is number one, sheet molding, number two, or compression molding with uh, isostatic forces, and number three. Again, all three of those involve machining the polyethylene. Number four is direct compression molding, which as the name would suggest involves uh, directly compressing the polyethylene into the shape that's desired, that's going to be the best, uh, the best option. Uh, so keep that in mind. Direct compression molding is better than the other three. Also remember, calcium stearate is bad. That can lead to fusion defects in the polyethylene, and gamma irradiation in air is bad as well, and those, uh, those will come up. So if we get back to the question, uh, which of the following manufacturing techniques results in the lowest susceptibility to fatigue crack formation and propagation of total joint arthroplasty bearings? Uh, if you look through the, uh, the questions here, you say, uh, well, let's look for the one without machining. It's direct compression molding. Uh, number four, that's going to be your answer. And it looks like uh, most of you got that correct. Uh, there were some, uh, some answers for number one. So ram bar extrusion, even if you have no idea what that means, recognize secondary machining. That's not, uh, that's not great. So you're going to cross that one out. Similarly, number five, which 8% uh, of you uh, answered, you see in there as well, secondary machining. That's bad. Calcium stearate, that's bad. So cross out number five. Uh, answer number three, a radiation with 10 megarads of radiation achieving a polyethylene crystallinity of uh, over 90%. The crystallinity uh, in these polyethylenes is not uh, over 90%. That may be something that you either know or you don't. But if you know a few basic concepts, you can at least uh, narrow it down to, uh, to two of these. Uh, and hopefully you'll remember direct compression molding. Go with that one. Moving on to the next uh, topic, sagittal plane or gap balancing and total knee arthroplasty. Now, this is one that if you uh, understand the main concept, you'll get all of these questions right. These are, these are kind of gimmies. Question 28, during a primary total knee arthroplasty, trial of components demonstrates a knee that is balanced in flexion 
and loose in extension. Which of the following will balance the flexion and extension gaps? Straightforward gap balancing question. Now, there's different approaches on how to do this, and I think you have to figure out which approach is going to work for you. You need to know what will change your gaps in flexion and extension. If you understand that basic concept, if you're in doubt on the test, just draw out a picture. So uh, there's a. This is what I used to do on these tests. So I take, I just on the margin of the paper, I draw out this picture here. I draw out a knee in extension. I draw out a knee in flexion, and I would take every answer that the question gives you and tinker with those. You know, if you if you augment the femur, uh, uh, make it bigger. What happens to the flexion gap? What happens to the extension gap? Um, a lot of these slides came from uh, Dr. McPherson's talk from uh, the Miller Review course. He also uses the rule that if it's a symmetrical problem, tinker with the tibia. If it's an asymmetrical problem, tinker with the femur. So whatever uh, approach you do, whatever method you use to answer these questions, it should be uh, reliable and consistent. You should have a technique to get all of these correct. So if we look at this particular uh, question, we've got a loose extension gap uh, with our flexion gap that looks pretty good. In this case, uh, the knee may hyperextend, as we see here. The posterior capsule is slack. Uh, the way to fix this is to add to the distal femur. Uh, this will tighten up our extension gap and will do nothing to our flexion gap. The other option here would be to downsize the femoral component and increase the polyethylene thickness. So by downsizing the femoral component, you make the flexion gap bigger. So you've now got a loose extension gap, a loose flexion gap, and you balance those out with a thicker polyethylene insert. So the answer to this question is going to be uh, number two, distal femur augmentation and use of the same uh, size polyethylene. And uh, again, the majority of you got this, uh, this answer correct. A few people answered uh, question five, distal femur augmentation and thicker polyethylene insert. So the reason this is wrong that if you, is if you uh, augment the distal femur, you may uh, deal with the extension gap okay, but if you increase your polyethylene insert, all of a sudden now you've got a tight uh, flexion space, which was previously balanced. So that's the key. If you're going to, uh, again, the polyethylene, if you alter that, you're going to uh, affect both your extension and flexion gaps. Question 10, same idea. During trialing for a cruciate retaining total knee arthroplasty, the surgeon is unable to fully extend the knee and is left with a 15-degree flexion contracture. The flexion gap is well-balanced. So you've got a tight extension gap with a well-balanced flexion gap. Which of the following options will create a knee that is balanced in both flexion and extension? Again, this is a straightforward gap balancing question. You've got a tight extension, uh, uh, extension gap. The knee does not come out straight. There's two options here. Assuming the flexion gap is nicely balanced, you release the posterior capsule. Uh, to bring the knee out into extension, or you cut more distal femur. Those are your two possibilities. So if we get back to the question, again, we've got a tight extension gap, well-balanced flexion gap. Uh, we're going to resect uh, more distal femur. Again, McPherson's rule, tinker with the femur. Question number nine. During trialing for a cruciate sacrificing total knee arthroplasty, the surgeon notes an imbalance between the flexion and extension gaps with significant uh, flexion instability. The extension gap is well-balanced. Which of the following options is the best intraoperative solution? Again, this is a straightforward gap-balancing problem. So your options here are to translate the femoral component posteriorly. Uh, so this tightens up your flexion gap. Uh, you can use an augment if needed. The other way to do this is by uh, increasing the size of your femoral component. So again, your, uh, your extension gap stays the same. You've tightened up your flexion gap, uh, and that's going to be your answer. So if we get back to the question, uh, again, you've got a uh, extension gap is well balanced, but the uh, flexion gap is loose. You need to tighten up the flexion gap. The answer here is going to be three: upsize the femoral component and add posterior augments. And uh, again, the vast majority of you got that uh, question correct. The next topic: uh, total knee arthroplasty complications. Question 21: A 65-year-old healthy male has just underwent primary total knee arthroplasty. 
Which of the following is associated with use of a closed suction drain in this procedure? Uh, this is one of the questions where you, you just need to know the answer. Uh, and this should be seared into your brain. So uh, drain increases the rate of transfusion and total joint arthroplasty. Doesn't matter what your attendings may do, I drain all my joints. It's irrelevant for the test. If you see a question about drains, it's increased uh, rate of transfusion. You find that answer, you tick that box, and you move on. Uh, so getting back to the question, again, what is, uh, what's associated with use of a closed suction drain and uh, total knee arthroplasty? It's going to be number two, increased incidence of transfusion. A uh, number of people uh, answered uh, four, decreased incidence of hematoma formation requiring return of the OR. That makes some intuitive sense. Uh, the data uh, doesn't really bear that out. And there's a recent Cochrane review on this topic as well. Um, and so they're looking for uh, your knowledge of what the uh, meta-analysis says. And the meta-analysis says, doesn't affect hematoma formation or return to the OR. It does lead to increased rates of transfusion. So you just got to know that. Question 45. A 65-year-old woman complains of worsening left knee pain seven months following total knee arthroplasty. She reports good pain relief for the initial five months following surgery. Physical exam is notable for a stable knee with range of motion from 0 to 115 degrees. So the knee seems uh, pretty reasonable on exam. Uh, no giveaways there. The radiographs are provided in figures A and B. Again, the x-rays uh, look pretty good. We don't see anything uh, uh, catastrophic. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? So you've got a patient that did reasonably well for a few months after total knee arthroplasty uh, and then started having problems. No other real clues uh, from the uh, question stem. So uh, when we're working out painful total knee arthroplasties, uh, we've got to remember both intrinsic and extrinsic uh, causes. Uh, and you always want to remember, as was said uh, by Steve at the outset of this uh, webinar, that these joints come in, they are uh, infected until proven otherwise. So they always need to be ruled out for infection. That involves obtaining an ESR and CRP. The uh, aspiration is the next step if these are elevated. So getting back to the question, and it uh, looks like, again, the, the majority of you got this uh, question correct. Uh, with a knee that uh, looks okay, uh, the next step in, in uh, evaluation is going to be obtaining an ESR CRP uh, plus minus a white blood cell count. So the answer is four. Question 20. A 73-year-old female underwent total knee arthroplasty 10 years ago. She sustained a proximal tibial shaft paraprosthetic fracture after a ground-level fall. Radiographs show that the fracture involves the tibial component stem with loosening of the tibial component. Treatment should consist of... Now, uh, when it comes to periprosthetic fractures, again, there's a couple of key concepts that you need to know. If you know these, uh, if you know these key concepts, you'll get these questions right. So if the implant is loose, you've got to revise it. So that's the first question you need to answer yourself for these uh, when, you, when you come to these periprosthetic fracture questions. Is the implant loose? And often in the question, they'll give you the answer. You know, they'll say the patient's doing well until the fall, which suggests that the implant uh, was well fixed. Or they'll say, you know, they'll say, well, the patient's got, uh, you know, said thigh pain for several months. Uh, sometimes they'll just come out and tell you. And this, this idea, uh, this concept is also true for total hips, as we'll see in a few questions. So uh, if the implant's loose, revise it. If the implant's stable, you can fix it. Uh, and just like other fractures, if it's a truly non-displaced fracture, casting or bracing may be an option. So getting back to the question, you've got a paraprosthetic uh, tibia fracture below a knee uh, replacement. In the question, they tell you that the stem is loose. So right out of the gates, you say, all right, Brownie told me if the stem's loose, I've got to revise it. You've answered the question. So if you look at the all five uh, answers there, only one involves revision, uh, which is number four, and that's the answer. So you revise the tibial component. The vast majority of you got that correct. Question number one, malrotation of total knee components leading to patellar tracking problems is best diagnosed by what radiographic modality? When it comes to total knee arthroplasty and patellar tracking, 
the uh, patella is like the canary in the mine shaft. So if the patella uh, is tracking poorly, that should alert you to the fact that the, the knee needs further investigation uh, to look for Q angle problems. Is the knee in, uh, in a bunch of valgus? Is, uh, is, are the components rotated properly? Is the patellofemoral joint overstuffed? Those are the three uh, most common causes for patellar maltracking problems. These uh, questions typically are going to look for you to investigate component malrotation, uh, typically uh, internal rotation of the femoral component or internal rotation of the tibial component uh, is what they're getting at. And the way to, to investigate that is with a CT scan. That allows you to look at cross-sectional images through the knee uh, and look at the epicondylar axis. Getting back to the question, malrotation of total knee components is best evaluated with uh, answer number three, a CT scan of the knee. Again, to get cross-sectional images, looking at the epicondylar axis uh, to look at rotation. Dynamic examination under anesthesial fluoroscopy, that, that may help you uh, look at uh, where exactly the patella is maltracking, what, what's going on with the patella, but it does not uh, allow you to really determine uh, the rotational alignment of your implants. Next uh, topic is total hip arthroplasty dislocation, question 49. A 65-year-old male with chronic right hip pain undergoes a procedure seen in figure A utilizing a posterior approach. Which of the following hip positions would put the patient at the greatest risk for dislocation? When it comes to uh, dislocation, posterior dislocation is the most common regardless of approach. Uh, the posterior approach uh, has the highest risk for instability uh, with larger heads and improved technique uh, that the uh, risk for instability approaches that of other uh, surgical approaches. But uh, certainly for the boards, the posterior approach has the highest risk for instability and the direction of instability is related to the approach. Uh, anterior uh, dislocation occurs with extension and external rotation and posterior instability occurs with flexion and internal rotation, as you can see pictured here. So uh, pretty straightforward question, uh, how does the hip pop out to posteriorly? And that's going to be with flexion and internal rotation, answer number three. And the uh, vast majority of you got that correct. Question 41, a 68-year-old male, two-week status post left total hip arthroplasty, experiences a painful clunk getting out of bed in the morning. He's unable to bear weight on the left leg. A radiograph is provided in figure A. Following closed reduction under sedation, the hip continues to dislocate with flexion up to 90 degrees. Each of the following operative interventions will increase the stability of the hip except. Now this can be uh, an entire lecture about the hip dislocation. We'll hit some of the key points here that you should keep in mind. Instability is uh, typically multifactorial, and the solution depends on the problem, what led to the instability. And there's really patient factors, surgeon factors, and implant factors that can lead to instability. Patient factors are listed here. Um, the uh, status of the soft tissues, that's really key. So patients without abductors or abductor uh, deficiencies, whether that be from uh, previous surgery, uh, neurologic conditions, uh, et cetera, those patients are very high risk for instability. Surgeon factors, uh, namely component position, that's also uh, critical, as well as implant factors uh, with component design. And we'll, we'll touch on a, key of these, uh, a few of these key, key points. So the soft tissues, in particular, the abductor tension is critical. If the abductors are uh, short or insufficient, the patient uh, is going to be at high risk for instability. Abductor, uh, lack of abductor tension can be addressed with trochanteric advancement by increasing leg length, increasing offset, or uh, using a constrained liner if the abductors are gone. A component position uh, is important. Patient, uh, you want to eliminate impingement. So patients that impinge are going to dislocate. If the components are malpositioned, they need to be revised. So that's a, that's a key concept as well. If you get a question like this and you've got a retroverted socket, and a patient's having a posterior dislocation, the answer is going to involve component revision. Uh, component design is also important. So the head-neck ratio is a, a, a critical uh, concept, as you can see here. If the uh, neck is relatively small compared to the head size, you can see that there's much greater range of motion until impingement. Conversely, if you have a big fat neck or a collar, 
the hip is going to impinge much earlier in the range of motion. That's going to lead to levering and instability. Uh, head size is also important. Uh, with the jump distance or the lever out distance, the ball has to uh, travel a greater amount of excursion before it dislocates with a larger head size. So these are uh, key components. Again, this is uh, the stuff of an entire lecture in the Miller course, uh, but those are the sort of the key uh, points that you want to understand. So in this particular question, the wrong answer here, the, uh, the answer they're looking for that will not improve stability is by medializing the cup. You see, if you medialize the cup without changing the other components, you'll actually decrease the abductor tension, uh, which will lead to uh, lack of uh, hip stability. So that's going to be the answer. So revising the acetabular component to a more medialized position is going to be the one answer that will not improve stability. If you advance the trochanter distal on the femur, answer two, which uh, 11 of you chose, that will actually increase your abductor tension. Uh, so that's good for hip stability. Answer three, converting to a femoral component with extended offset. Again, extending the offset will increase your abductor tension. Uh, so that will improve stability. Answer four was one that a number of you chose, 29 of you chose, answer four. Replacing the acetabular polyethylene with a constrained liner. Constrained liners are rarely the answer for the boards. If you get a question where the abductors are completely gone, the patient has no abductors whatsoever, that's probably the only board answer where you're going to check the box with a constrained liner. Constrained liners uh, decrease the range of motion to impingement. So if a patient has reasonable abductors, you're going to want to avoid uh, constrained liners. You're going to want to avoid that answer. And then uh, answer five, two of you chose a larger head size on the uh, larger femoral head size, larger excursion uh, distance, larger jump distance to dislocation. Question 16. Figure A depicts an individual seen from behind during a single leg stance on the left lower extremity. Which of the following modifications during a left-sided total hip arthroplasty would exacerbate the abnormal findings present in figure A? Well, the first thing to recognize is what, what exactly this picture is showing you. Um, the patient is standing on their left side. Uh, their right side is raised in the air. You can see that they're having to lean on the table here for some stability. And they're leaning their trunk over the affected hip. And that's the Trendelenburg sign. So you need to recognize that uh, to get the question right. The Trendelenburg sign occurs when patients have weak abductors. They lurch uh, the trunk over to the weakened side to attempt, uh, attempt to maintain a level pelvis and avoid falling during single leg stance. After total hip arthroplasty, uh, this can be uh, made worse if you uh, decrease the tension on the abductors. So if you reduce the head offset, shorten the leg, you'll weaken the abductors, you'll lose your abductor tension, and you'll make someone worse who already has some pre-existing abductor uh, insufficiency. So if we, uh, again, the question is asking, in this patient who has a Trendelenburg sign, who has weak abductors, what can you do with a total hip that's going to make them worse? And the answer is going to be one, decreasing femoral offset. Looks like um, the majority of you got that correct. Uh, answer two, lateralizing the acetabular cup. That's not necessarily going to reduce the abductor tension. So if you lateralize the acetabular cup, presumably you're going to lateralize the hip as well. That will put the abductors under tension. None of you chose answer three. Answer four, increasing the femoral neck length. Again, if you lengthen the hip, you're going to increase your abductor tension. Finally, uh, a few of you chose answer uh, five, moving the uh, stabular component inferiorly. Uh, that should have uh, no effect on the, uh, on the abductor tension. Uh, which of the following factors is most likely to increase the risk of hip dislocation after a total hip arthroplasty? This is question 34. Again, this is, uh, speaks to the previous slide looking at uh, the risk of dislocation and what factors go into hip dislocation after total hip. For the boards, uh, the target implant position that uh, you want to keep in mind for the cup is uh, an antiversion of about 20 to 30 degrees. 
and a, uh, an abduction angle of about 35 to 45 degrees. The stem should have about 10 to 15 degrees of uh, antiversion. And uh, you want to avoid things that lead to impingement. Uh, we talked about this previously, so uh, neck skirts or collars that, again, decreases the head-neck ratio until impingement. You can see that uh, uh, demonstrated in this picture here. You can see uh, without a collar, the hip can move uh, a greater distance before impingement. With a collar, it impinges earlier uh, and can lead to levering out of the head. Acetabular hoods effectively do the same thing. It decreases the primary arc of motion to impingement. And uh, as I mentioned previously, uh, previously constrained cups uh, also markedly decrease the primary uh, arc of motion until impingement. So getting back to the question, which of the following factors is most likely to increase the risk of hip dislocation after a total hip arthroplasty? The answer is two, use of a skirted femoral head, uh, as we saw with that uh, picture. Uh, most of you, again, got that answer correct. The second most popular answer was answer number five, acetabular cup and 50 degrees of abduction. I assume that uh, the people who chose that recognize that that was a little bit out of the ideal zone. The question asked for what, which of the following factors is most likely to increase the risk of hip dislocation. Uh, the acetabular cup and 50 degrees of abduction uh, is uh, not a huge outlier, and use of a skirted femoral head is certainly uh, a bigger problem to decrease the effective hip range of motion to impingement. That's all for this recon question review session. Hope that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets audio review, a daily podcast by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thank you so much, and we'll see you tomorrow.